Hey, WellPod listeners, this is Anson. Just a quick note before we start this week's show to let you know that this episode features strong language, adult themes, and beyond that, it's a pretty rough one. So this is definitely not an episode you want to listen to with children in the room. Okay, enjoy the show. Welcome to The Well. I'm Anson Mount. And I am Brandon Edgens. And Brandon, I'm very excited to share this interview with you. Uh, It's something that I've been wanting to share with you for a while. Um, It's different. You know, this is a podcast about creativity and inspiration, and we've had a lot of guests talking about their creative endeavors, their works, and the inspiration behind them. But this is a story about someone finding out that they themselves served as the inspiration for creative work and how that kind of realization and someone else's vision of you can change your perspective or at least make you look back on things from a different perspective. So my buddy Jake Weber is an actor. You know him. You've met him before and we've mm-hmm. hung out. In fact, he's a, he's a tremendous actor. One of the best I've ever had the pleasure of working with, actually. He's been in a slew of films, including Amistad, Meet Joe Black, Pushing Tin, Dawn of the Dead, White House Down, the list goes on. He's also been in television shows like The Mind of a Married Man, The Medium, and most recently Homeland. And he played Governor John Campbell in my TV show, Hell on Wheels, which is how you met him. Yeah. But we've known each other much, much longer than that. You see, Jake was always kind of a distant big brother to me in the business, We didn't see each other terribly often, but when we did, it was as if no time had passed and catching up was never any trouble because Jake is, for whatever reason, one of the most open, sharing people I've ever known. And honest. (laughs) I can always count on Jake to tell me exactly how he feels, whether that's his opinion of a scene or a decision I've made. Hmm. So back in, I want to say 2004, 2005, I'm over at Jake's apartment in Malibu catching up. I go to the bathroom, and on my way, I see that he's hung a new piece of art in his hallway. It's a photograph, and it's of two people sitting in a hallway. One of these people is clearly a young Mick Jagger, and the other is a blonde boy around eight years of age. I go back into the living room, and I say, Hey, Jake, is that you in that photo with Mick Jagger? And he says, Uh, yeah. And, he, you know, he says it in a way that I, I can tell to just not go there. Huh. So I don't. Flash forward 13 or 14 years later. Hell on Wheels is over. I'm living back in NYC. But I'm in L.A. on business, and I'm grabbing a drink with Jake, as I usually do when I'm in L.A. And I tell him about this podcast I'm doing called The Well. And he responds, <clears throat> Maybe you can finally ask me about that photograph with Jagger. <laughs> It's just like that. Literally the first mention of that photograph in like 13 or 14 years. So at the end of the next day, I go over to his place with my equipment. He pours me a glass of wine and I start recording. Um, so the picture, I guess the, the that picture probably showed up at that time because the guy who took those photographs that were later published in a book called Exile... And has had an exhibition that's toured all over the world. There was a guy who was writing a book about the Stones who was trying to reach my dad. And 
Dominique Tarlet who made those, who shot those shots, and they were sitting in a in a box for thirty years. He had supplied some pictures for the book, and so he put me in touch with Dominique Tarlet because I was at the time trying to do a documentary on my my parents, but I had no pictures from my childhood because we moved around so much, mostly running away from wherever we had. My dad had posted up, got in trouble with the law, and then we'd have to run. So we never had anything in terms of you know memorabilia, the kind of things that most families have. So I had no pictures at all. So I contacted Dominique, and and he sent me these amazing images, you know, that were selling for a fortune, you know, five grand or something. And he sent me a whole bunch of them. And some of them were upstairs on the wall, and so that's probably how that showed up. You know, my dad was a... Uh, somebody asked me once what my dad did for a living, and I said drugs. <laughs> that's pretty much it. He did drugs for a living. Um, he was a smuggler. He was a con man. He was a race car driver, movie star good looks. 6'3", blonde, green-eyed. And he was an outlaw, and always have been a gambler, a thief. And he, uh, he came up in London while he was racing cars, and he came up in the vanguard of the music scene in, in London with my mom. My mom was very young. She was 18 when I was born. He was 22 racing cars, gambling. And their social world, they're like Zelig's. Their social world was, was the, the life of London in the early 60s when the whole world was changing there. And so he got into, out of race car driving. Um, he was too reckless a driver and, you know, was an amazing driver, but terrifying to be in a car with because he was just reckless he's the guy that nobody else wants to be on the track with because you know he's going to wipe you out I don't know if this is going to be useful or anything but anyway that's just an impossible intro <laughs> what I, I mean it's it's the beginning of it it's just the sound of his voice and the way he's talking it sounds like the opening narration of a TV show <laughs> You know, it's like, he did drugs for a living. He was an outlaw, blonde, green-eyed. He was a race car driver. Like, whoa, have I seen this? You ain't heard nothing yet. I, I, I know that's the thing, is that I'm like, this just started. <laughs> now what? What could possibly happen next? But clearly a lot. So uh, he got into, into, into uh, music and heavily into drugs and drug smuggling. And we just traveled around. Me, me and my brother traveled around with him. My mother was also traveling at the time. We left London when I was five. And my dad was just running from the law and brought drugs to... He was very brave. He was a driver. And he was very brave, and he would just travel the world. He had a, had a, uh, he had a huge bankroll full of um, airline tickets that he had gotten from... Somebody worked at British Airways who got them from so he had all these other all these airlines in a huge bankroll and he just fill them out and we go wherever we wanted. 
when you get drugs. So we, we were couriers. And the Stones came along because my mom and Anita Pallenberg, who was Keith Richards' common-law wife, um, she was in performance. She was this Austrian kind of supermodel, this wild, crazy... Um, she just recently passed. She and my mom <coughs> were in a um, dry-out place together. My mom had been, went crazy. Um, she, the diagnosis was drug-induced schizophrenia, but she was never too tightly wrapped to begin with, and they say the drugs just put her over the edge. So she ended up uh, being committed, and when she transitioned out, electric shock therapy, all this fucking stuff, terrible, terrible. And then when she uh, transitioned into this drug rehabilitation unit that Anita was at, they'd known each other from before in London because they're all part of that scene that I was telling you about. And then the two of them um, got into drugs because Anita had no interest in drying out. And my mom, whose name was Puss, she went by Puss, her name was Susan, she ended up getting pulled back in the vortex of all of the drugs, which were not good for her. And she and Anita may or may not have had, um, you know, a, a intimate relationship. And... Um, and then uh, we, my dad, uh, my dad was approached uh, by Anita, I think, to uh, bring Coke to Mick Jagger's wedding in the south of France with Bianca. He was getting married to Bianca Jagger. And the Stones were writing Exile on Main Street at the Villa Nilcott, which is where these pictures come from. Dominic Tarley took and uh, dad was contracted to bring coke to the wedding so off we went me my brother I'm eight Charlie's seven and we go through Holland pick up the coke my dad tapes it to my chest about a pound bag on each side, and Sam, my brothers, and we went through the softest borders to get to the south of France. And um, we stayed there for most of the summer. I don't think we were invited for the whole summer, although, you know, it was Christmas in June. It was snowing <laughs> at the Villa Nelcott. Um, but uh, my mom passed. My mom killed herself um, that summer because she wasn't able to come and join us and her, and her parents who were holding her passport wouldn't give it to her. And she'd gotten all strung out again. And so she checked out. So when we were with the Stones when this happened and yeah, that's pretty much where you end the story. <laughs> so, um, had 
she, you know, <clears throat> addicts coming out of using famously hit this deep depression. Is that kind of what happened, do you think? She was always depressed. She always, she had tried to kill herself before when we were younger, because I remember being really young, going to, uh, um, to the hospital because she tried to kill herself. And she was always talking about how she wanted to be away from this world. And this was, a, you know, a temporary place and the real happiness came in another life. You know, she was a real true kind of hippie, you know, and she bought all that, you know, she bought all that, what well, it wasn't new agey then. Now they call it new agey stuff. But she was always unstable, um, and she was always uh, suicidal. And then, you know, she just she put on a lot of weight. She was she was quite sort of stunning looking, striking. Not like a conventional beauty, but a very striking woman. Um, and the drugs that they put her on at the uh, in the in the asylum made her really fat and they cut her hair off. And I think she just couldn't deal. And she wanted to leave and she checked out, man. How'd she do it? Uh, she took, she went and bought, <laughs> so bizarre. She went to, she bought a, a, a little packet of hot dogs and a some booze. I don't know what kind of booze, what, whiskey or something, I don't know. She'd managed to convince her doctor or her pharmacist to give her extra uh, sleeping pills because she was going to the south of France. And so she wasn't going to be able to get them there. So she talked him into, to, even though she knew she wasn't going to get out because uh, they wouldn't give her a passport. And um, she checked into this, this seedy motel, you know, in, in, in somewhere in London. And ate these raw hot dogs to keep the pills down, I guess. Mm -hmm. Drank the booze and mm. that was it. And you're how old? Eight. And how uh, did you find out? I found out coming back from um, the, we were out on the boat. Um, uh, Keith Richards had this beautiful Reva speedboat, wooden thing gorgeous thing you've ever seen we were out on the boat and we came back in and we walked in the door and I just remember seeing my, my pop and he, he just came out right and right said it he said your mother's dead um, and then after that it was like uh, noise Do you ever see that movie Blue? Well, in Blue, Juliet Binoche plays uh, a woman who has lost her family in a car crash. And the only way she gets uh, peace is by swimming underneath the water. All the noise goes away. That was kind of, when I saw that movie, I was like, that's what it felt like. 
the noise was it was just it was just a, 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 a cacophonous like just just noise um, and you know dad went on a bender of course because that's the best solution <laughs> when you two kids have lost their mom I'll just go on a bender so I don't feel anything um, kind of guy he was and uh, we ended up staying the summer and you know they recorded the the album and and uh, it was actually an amazing summer I mean it was obviously really sad after that happened but um, it was an amazing summer do you uh, remember the circumstances of that photograph being taken well, they, they recorded down in the basement. They had the whole basement. It was just this magnificent old rundown, you know, villa. Um, and Keith Richards, they recorded in Keith Richards' house because he, well, he, he was the leader of the band. And nothing happened unless he was going to write music. And he was only going to write music when he felt like writing music. So the band would just sit and hang around until Keith was ready. And usually that would happen uh, at night. And they would go down and they would jam and record at night and we would go down there and watch them. And there was Jack, Keith Richards like Jack Daniels, I don't know, whatever, everyone else um, had something. And uh, they would, they would uh, jam. Write these songs. Eventually a truck showed up and they started recording. How did they uh, deal with having this eight-year-old kid around? Well, there were a lot of kids there. That's what was so weird about this, about this. It was a real family scene, mm -hmm. you know? I mean, it, it was, there was Jimmy Price, who was the trumpet player. He had his kid there. And of course, Marlon was there, who's Anita and, and, uh, and Keith, Keith's kid. And that was me and Charlie. Um, and there were people coming in and out, you know? It was it was like a holiday. I remember they all got bikes. They all got motorcycles. And <laughs> they started off in these little, little Vespas, you know, or little, you know, 250 cc's. Within two weeks, they were on like 800 cc's. <laughs> you know, they upgraded pretty fast. Obviously, I got pictures of us riding around on the back of these fucking motorcycles. No helmets, nothing. <laughs> right. <laughs> Look, there's so many stories from that period, but, you know, we don't need to talk about that. But what's always impressed me about Jake, besides his honesty, is his strength, his personal strength, and his ability to see where he is, where he wants to go, and get there. And so what happened next was as much an incredible story as what we've already heard. Uh, we went back through Holland and made a couple of other pit stops, and we ended up going to Denmark for a couple of years because Dad wanted to, to get back in touch with his old man who had left, who he had left when he was a kid with his mom. The old man was a... Uh, he had been a Nazi sympathizer, and he was a Air Force officer in the Danish Air This is your grandfather? Force. My grandfather, my dad's, my dad's. And my father's mom left, and she had a Sophie's Choice moment. She had two kids, 
And he said, you get one. And you leave or I'm turning you into the Nazis. And they're going to do whatever they want with you. So she took my, my dad and left the older on a bike and got her way back to the UK. Um, where were we? We were talking about how did I get from... Okay, so we ended up... We got to Denmark. You didn't go... You tell me how you didn't go to school. Yeah, we didn't go to school. I never went to school. I mean, it was like there was no school. Um, my brother couldn't read when he was 11. You know, the only reason I could read is because I, I, I loved it. So I, I got people to teach me how to read and I read cartoons and then on to Lord of the Rings and all that stuff. Um, so we ended up making our way eventually. Dad was in, in uh, we, we moved to Denmark and my dad was like, we're going to have a live a bucolic life. It's going to be simple and we're going to live in Denmark. And But did he, did he find his father? Oh, he did. That ended badly. <laughs> Well, what do you think? He was a fucking Nazi sympathizer. <laughs> right. Dad was a fucking outlaw. It's right. never going to end well. Right. <laughs> and in tears. Um, and uh, so he found the father. We stayed in Denmark. And we eventually the, the cops came for my dad because um, he, he had a Hertz rental uh, a station wagon that he rented from Hertz when he first got to Denmark. And he kept the car. So eventually, this guy, this little nevishy guy, after a year and a half, my dad was working as a lumberjack. And I was like, this is great. This is so fucking great. We're just calm. My dad's not drinking all the time. He's got a job. He's going out. He's cutting down trees. He's looking like some kind of Norse god. He's all, like, muscular. And, and we grew our hedges really high. And dad would, you know, sit around sunbathing, smoking naked and playing guitar when he wasn't cutting down trees. And we had this little cottage, and it was all decorated with uh, uh, paintings that my brother and I had made. We all slept in the same bed. Um, and eventually this guy, like, knocked on the door. This little guy, little nebbishy guy. My dad said, yeah, I'm from Hertz. <laughs> well, come on in. No, 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 I'm just here for the car. No, 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 come in. Yeah, well, you can have the car. But come in, come in, come in. Long story short, he stayed there for about six weeks. <laughs> because one of my father's many or few redeeming features is that he was irresistibly charming. And he co-opted the Hertz guy. And the Hertz guy was living with us. It was like, where's, where's three of us in the bed and there's the Hertz guy sleeping on the foot of the bed. And so my dad kept him in. He got him a job as a lumberjack and stuff. And the guy started growing his hair. <laughs> Which just, it just, I love that part of the story because it just gives you a sense of how charismatic his father was. That's insane. You know, and that how you can get pulled into his vortex. <laughs> you know? I mean, the Hertz guy comes to get the car and he ends up staying for six weeks and becoming a completely different person. <laughs> Yeah, it's, okay, but then back to the story about how Jake got to where he wanted to go. I know, right? There's a lot of detours in this story. <laughs> and eventually, we came back, and he was gone. And so was the car. We're like, all right, boys, time to leave. <laughs> so we, I don't, we left everything, everything that was there. You know, we lost. And then he just got 
as soon as he got back to London, he went off the deep end and he met this girl and they were doing smack and, and it was not a good situation for me and Charlie. We were basically out trying to do whatever we could, man, to, we were stealing and thieving and odd jobbing and washing cars and. How old are you by this time? 11 11. Yeah. Yeah. 11. And then eventually, uh, we went to stay with, my dad called uh, my mom's family. He said, come get the kids. I can't, I can't deal with them. And they took us in, and they had five kids of their own, and they put us in the local uh, local parochial school, like this little village. They lived in a village. So we went there for a few months, and then eventually my dad showed up and said, we're going to Summerhill. And put us in the car, and we dropped us off at this famous... Uh, progressive boarding school and we stayed there for four years and then my godfather said uh, he took his job description very seriously and said come on come to America I'm gonna put you in school over here did your brother come with you no my brother was supposed to come but he he uh, they ended up saying no we can't take two it was really sad for him so he ended up staying in, in England, and he struggled. I got a lifeline, you know, and so I left. I went to the States. Oh. So he brought me out here, and he put me in this all-boys prep school in Santa Barbara. I mean, talk about a fish out of water. I was older than everyone. I was brutally unprepared for this curriculum. This is the top, top tier private school and I worked my tits off um, and Charlie got kind of left behind and I don't think he ever really recovered from it um, so I worked my ass off of Kate caught up as best I could turned out I was a good student and by the time I was done at Kate I got into Middlebury College it was a really, wow. really good school yeah and then from there uh, I didn't know what I wanted to study in Middlebury, but I didn't think it was acting. But I applied to some drama schools. I was going to be pretty low. I thought I'd end up being a teacher or something, because I love literature. And then got into Juilliard with a free ride, and that's it. <laughs> yada, yada, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> yeah. Suddenly, I'm the top of the class. Anyway, full ride, Juilliard. Yeah, yeah right. as you do. Yeah, right. <laughs> Do you mind? Do you, what happened with your dad? What happened with your father? Oh, so so the old man, um, <laughs> he's like a fucking cockroach. He was not going to be destroyed. <laughs> dad lived till sixty-seven, and he was up in rugby, and he was, you know, useless. He couldn't get a job, hustling, stealing, thieving, doing whatever he could. You know, all of his, you know, fancy fancy people. You know, they they'd all gone been in and out of jail um, and he ended up falling off his bike because he couldn't drive because he lost his license and jammed his, his his foot against the curb and shattered his pelvis so they took him to the hospital which is not you know it's treatable but because he didn't have his drugs at this point he was strung out on synthetic morphine you know because they you know he couldn't get heroin or he could it was too expensive but they wouldn't give him his drugs, and so he walked out of the hospital on a fractured head. 
shattered hip. He ended up having one of those little wheelchairs that move around. And he would <laughs> drive it, you know, because he was always a chancer. Mm. So he would just put, go to the supermarket and just gun this thing and have it with him, you know, half an inch, on a, a quarter inch on each side of where he's going because he had such great sense of proprioception in any kind of a moving vehicle. Anything mm. with wheels, he knew exactly where the where the parameters <laughs> where the parameters were. I mean, um, so he ended up dying. He ended up just basically everything just shut down on him eventually. And he just, okay. his last words were, he was asking for the, uh, he said, give me the good stuff. Give me the good stuff. And Sally was with him apparently. And his last words were, oh, that's the good stuff. <laughs> <laughs> Talk about a wasted life. Fuck me. It sounded like he was such a charmer. Were you ever able, or did you ever have any interest in having the what the fuck conversation? This is an amazing story, right? Um, that was an amazing time. And, I mean, there, I got these stories, and I got a fucking million more. <laughs> and he told me, I, I couldn't get him to write them down, so I said, all right, Dan, I'm just going to just talk. I'm just going to record you. And it was amazing, you know? It was a way for him to do an inventory on his life that he wasn't capable of doing or unwilling to do himself because it's just so fraught. Because you look at that life and you go, what did I do? What a horrible, horrible mistake I made. What a waste. But because I was asking the questions, he was really willing to go there, you know? Uh, and... It was lovely. I mean, I, you know, I ended up really loving my father deeply. And then when he died, um, and I had my own child, I fell out of love with him. And, you know. Why? Because he was a terrible human being. <laughs> he was a terrible, selfish, hedonistic human being. And the fact that he, it would be sentimental to say that because he had some, you know, you know, come to Jesus moment at the end of his life that that made up for his Faustian bargain. Yeah, that's the that's the movie version, right? Right, right, exactly. Yeah. Um, but you know, he lived a big life, and he was a terrible dad, um, and he wasted it all because he died alone. We don't want to die alone, Anson. We don't want to die alone. You recording? Uh, so yeah, that's um, basically the end of the story. Brandon just went and grabbed the bottle of whiskey. Um, I need a drink now. Yeah, we need it to have a drink, which we're going to do. Oh, thank you. Yeah. Listening to that story, one of the things that, or there's multiple stories, one of the remarkable things about it is well, of course you don't re you don't um, you know gasp in amazement at your own story, but at the same time, um, it's such a far out story, such an unusual background, but the way he tells it, this is somebody who's had to normalize a lot of abnormal shit. Yeah, and. I think anyone who has to normalize a lot of abnormal shit has a deeper keel. You know what I mean? Harder to rock.
his remark about being comfortable on stage, a lot of people aren't. <laughs> you know, and maybe it's just like I said before, maybe it's just the fact that he had normalized so much of the abnormal that his life was such a drama that performing that doing drama was not that crazy or or it, the stuff that he had to to act was not so foreign mm-hmm. in terms of things like stakes and all those things that a lot of like actors who have more suburban you know upbringings have no idea right. are clearly out of their element not a lot of us have had the experience of the Hertz guy showing up and right and, <laughs> and a lot, the car back <laughs> and so many things going on because you also can tell that he's alighting over a million other stories and a million yeah. other dramas. Yeah, yeah. Uh, he's someone who's had an experience, direct mm-hmm. experience with high stakes drama, and but as from such a young age that he didn't realize it was high stakes drama. <laughs> What's amazing to me is somebody who's that clearly highly sensitive. Hmm. who was able to steal themselves uh, through right. all of that. Not become hard, yeah. cynical, and jaded. Yeah. yeah. I mean, and and just simply survive with that mm-hmm. big of a heart. Mm-hmm. Maybe that's what, I mean, I've always wondered what my connection with Jake is, because it's, it's, it's no matter how much time or distance is between us, he's one of those people in my life that I always have to check in with. And I've always wondered what that was, and maybe that that is it. Having to come out of a, a tough situation with not really um, any male exemplar and have to figure out your own way as a man. You know, I, I have this... <laughs> it's kind of a joke, but it's kind of true. You know, I, I have this saying where with my female friends that I haven't seen in... A couple of years, we can go have one lunch, and I'll be completely caught up in my female friend's life. Mm-hmm. A male friend in the same situation, we can go spend several days together, and I will have no fucking idea anything that's happened in their life. Mm-hmm. Right. Because <laughs> we right. just don't talk that way. Right. Mm-hmm. So your gut instinct about people, sometimes wrong, but as you get older, it's often right. And if you're just patient enough, you know, you'll you'll get there. You'll figure those things out, and uh, the pieces will fall into place. I still don't know anything about you. <laughs> <laughs> you just serve good bourbon. That's, that's all it is. That's girl stuff, man. <laughs> we don't have to talk about that. Oh, speaking of bourbon, we're drinking bourbon right now. But you know, interestingly enough, Brandon, um, something did happen before I stopped rolling the tape. Um, listening to Jake tell his story of love and loss and the deep chasms that can separate us from those we love the most, I was reminded of this little, (laughs) this little thing that my adopted big brother Jake used to do to me all the time. It was so stupid. It was, uh, there was this t-shirt that I had made for myself years ago that I thought was quite clever. But whenever I wore it, and it was my favorite t-shirt, but he would constantly point out to whoever was standing around that I'd had it made for myself. And I'd get embarrassed, and I had no idea why. But then I remember that 
just before meeting the woman that I would spend the rest of my life with, I'd thrown that t-shirt away. Uh-huh. And now it was all so obvious. We don't want to die alone, Anson. We don't want to die alone. <laughs> yeah. That, is that why you always made fun of that T-shirt I used to have? Yeah, that was your T-shirt. Yeah, when I first met you, Manson, you were, we were doing some shitty movie. And you were like this mountain man. Like this handsome mountain man. You wore this T-shirt that said, Emotionally Unavailable. <laughs> well, the, you missed the best part. You missed the best part because it was a dark brown shirt. Yeah. And the lettering was black, so you had to get close to see what it oh, said. Oh, it's a joke shirt. <laughs> oh, that makes all the difference. I didn't realize it was a joke shirt. So It's like a funhouse mirror shirt. When she, <laughs> it has to distill. Like, what the fuck? That's the most retarded t-shirt I've ever seen. <laughs> yeah, and you're like, oh, Anton, you got to think about why you're wearing that shirt. Yeah. And he ruined that. It was my favorite t-shirt, and you ruined it for me. That's what I, friends are for, buddy. They call you I started, out. I, tried to, I started wearing it inside out because of that. And then that, <laughs> and then that didn't work. And I was like, oh, fuck it. Fine. <laughs> I don't know. Someone can just fucking pee on your Cheerios, can't they? <laughs> I remember that t-shirt, man. <laughs> Do you really? I did. And all, all I can say is Jake is a better friend for saying what I was thinking. <laughs> <laughs> I've known you longer, but he's clearly more direct than I am. Uh, that's my only, this is my only, I have to say something, and this is my only story about Jake. Uh, that when I came up to visit, uh, you had talked me up to fellow cast members. Was like, hey, my buddy, Brandon's coming up. He's a bourbon aficionado, <laughs> which isn't really true. <laughs> And uh, you had bought like these like six, seven really nice expensive bottles. And I show up and now I'm sitting across from like you and Jake and Common and who, who else Don was there? Norwood. Yeah, Don. And who else was there? I can't remember. And uh, 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 Chris Heyerdahl. Right. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and suddenly I'm like performing and I'm on stage and everyone's looking at me like, oh, you will be non guided through a tasting <laughs> a tasting of these bourbons and i don't know anything i just like to drink bourbon and uh but i don't have like a, a, a sophisticated palate or any means of like describing it so it just starts off with me like trying to kind of bs my way through this and like everyone this is bottle number one take a glass take a glass everyone has a little bit okay now take a look at it under the light note the color yes smell it Nice, right? Now, drink. Do you notice that? It's good, right? <laughs> okay. Second bottle. <laughs> Look at it. Smell it. Take a drink. That's also pretty good. <laughs> that was all that is all I can offer. Everyone's like, is this it? And I'm like, yeah, I'm afraid this is all I'm going to be able to do for y'all. It's just, I'm not really and it guiding got you. Better. <laughs> I'm not really guiding you so much as just drinking alongside you. <laughs> I 
The Well is produced, recorded, and edited by Brandon Edgens and myself, Anson Mount. Theme music by Jonathan Myberg. Extra music for this episode was provided by Rescue Sleeping Giant under a Creative Commons 4.0 international license and by Mon Plaisir under a 1.0 universal license. I'd really like to thank my buddy Jake for taking the time to sit down with me to record this episode, for being so incredibly honest, and for looking out for me all these years. In fact, you know what, Jake, if you're listening, next time I'm in LA, let's go have some t-shirts made. On me. I'll make sure that yours matches your man purse. (laughs) Thanks for listening, everyone. Have a great week.